want to read with you, first of all, Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Revelation chapter 4, in connection with Lord's Day 9. Revelation chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear the word of God with me. After these things, I that would be John then, the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take the place, must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper or a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Thus far the reading of the scriptures. Would you then turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal to Lord's Day 9. I find that on page 876. 876 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Lord's Day 9, question and answer 26. And here the question is asked, and I remind you that this is your own confession of faith, as it is mine. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Thus far the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, 
Notice, first of all, that the question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And then note with me that in the answer given us, only two lines are devoted to the matter of creation, and also only two lines deal with God's providence. Obviously, then, this Lord's Day is not intended to be an elaborate discussion of God's work of creation. But if you were to ask why then does the Catechism mention it at all in this context, if the discussion is to be about God the Father, if we are to focus on God the Father, why does the Catechism also in this context point us to his work of creation? Well, the authors of the Catechism had good reason because you see, the Heidelberg Catechism is a very personal confession of faith. And so in this context, God's creation activity is called to our attention to remind us that this almighty, powerful God, who out of nothing was able to form everything, this supreme being, who not only created but still also holds the whole world and everything in it in the palm of his hand, this same almighty God is my God and my Father. And that's the whole point, first of all, in this Lord's Day. Notice then also with me in the second place that the first paragraph of the answer opens and closes with a confession about God the Father, and all of the second paragraph is totally committed to instructing us on the, the benefits afforded to those who know God to be their Father. And then finally notice that in between all of these statements about God the Father, we are simply reminded of God's creation and God's providence. And when we put all that together now, then we know that the central theme, the essence, the very heart of this confession is clearly the fatherhood of God. That's the obvious intent of the writers of the catechism and must also be the emphasis of our explanation and the focus, our focus in this on this Lord's Day. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon using as my theme, the Christian's confession of faith in God the Father. The confession of the Christian of, uh, uh, is confession of faith in God the Father. We want to consider, first of all, God the Father and my creation, then God the Father and my adoption, and then finally God the Father and my new condition. So the Christian's confession of faith in God the Father, God the Father and my creation, God the Father and my adoption, and finally God the Father and my new creation. Congregation, we know from our Bibles that the world has not always been in existence. At a certain point in history, it had a beginning. Not so with God. God is eternal. We read here that God is the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and rightly so. Psalm 90 teaches us of that where we read, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all the generations, before the mountains were brought forth, before thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So then God existed before the world was. God was active even before his marvelous work of creation was begun. His, his is an everlasting activity from eternity to eternity. And my dear people, I, already I struggle for words to, 
to, to, to adequately explain that concept to you. I do not understand it. I cannot explain it. The confession of the eternal being of God, the Father, is an incomprehensible mystery to us. Who, who of us with our sin-darkened minds can even begin to fathom a God that has always been? How do I describe that mystery? How do you understand such a thing? And yet, according to our Bible, he has been, always has been, even before the beginning of time. The child of God cannot understand it. He cannot explain it. He simply believes it in faith because the Bible said so. We also learn from our Bible that although God is eternal, our world, as I said, is not. The earth and all that is in it was brought into being at a specific time. But now we are confronted with the question, where did it all come from? And again, the scripture gives us a clear and a definite answer that teaches us in many places that the heavens and the earth and all creatures were created by God. Constantly, the Bible comes back and reminds us of God's work in creation. When we open our Bibles, the very first thing we are instructed in is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the last book of the scriptures, we're told, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they exist and were created. And in between Genesis and Revelation, the teaching of God being the almighty creator is a thread that is woven throughout all of the scriptures, and rightly so, for he who would have God as father must first of all know him as his creator. Mighty people of God, despite the arguments of the secular scientific community, Genesis 1 and 2 teach us very clearly that all things have been made by God and continue to be dependent upon him for their existence. And the manner of God's creation activity is described as making all things out of nothing. We read that in six days God created the world in successive order, concluding his wondrous work by calling into being the first human pair, created in his own image to be the crowning jewel of his creation. At the word of God's command, the universe was called into being, or if you will, by the power of his word. Psalm 33 teaches us, let all the earth fear the Lord, for he, what? He spoke and it was done. He commanded it and it stood fast. And mighty people got throughout all of church history, few teachings of scripture have been as difficult to maintain as the doctrine of God's creation. Yet every true member of every true church of Christ continues to rise to their feet weekly to confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Whenever the historicity of the creation account is called into question and reduced to a myth or primeval history, the church is called upon to vigorously protest in the name of God's truth. We need to take care that we do not read into Genesis 1 or 2 more than God has chosen to reveal to us, and we confess that many questions will remain unanswered, and yet with the author of the letter to the Hebrews, we confess, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made out of things visible. Hebrews chapter 11. That first of all. But the Christian goes on to confess that this same God and Father who created all things is my God and Father. 
And that confession as well has been a source of much controversy. 18th century Unitarianism as well as modern liberalism was, was and still is determined to convince the world of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And the motive for doing so should be well understood by us. You see, if it can be shown that God is the father of all men, then it would follow that all men are brothers and constantly no one could claim exclusive knowledge or privilege from the father. All men then could lay claim to the same blessing. All men would then stand in the same condition in God's sight and all men would then be equal, so to speak. <coughs> and that is a great concern of our politically correct culture. The biblical teaching of God's sovereign electing love in Christ would then have to be discarded and the substitutionary atonement of Christ would become unnecessary. And that's also a matter of business on the agenda of our culture. People of God, we need to be able to read the times in which we live correctly. In their effort to remove Christ from the world, the world's agenda is first of all to, to convince us that all men are equally as brothers. That's the driving force of Mr. Trudeau's liberal government and is being enforced by Canada's Human Rights Tribunal. All distinctions must be removed in a culture enamored by multiculturalism. Everyone is the same and everyone is equal, be that as gay, lesbian, trans, or straight, be that Muslim, Jew, or Christian. There are no distinctions. All men are equal according to the world. Now understand well and distinguish clearly with me. It is true, of course, that the New Testament does recognize in a certain broad sense in which God is the father of all men by virtue of creation. We read, for instance, of Paul's address to the men of Athens in Acts 17, where we hear him saying, And God made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek after God, for we are also his offspring. And there Paul acknowledges that all men are indeed the offspring of God in the sense that all men owe their existence to him and all of mankind must depend on him for continued sustenance. However, to call God on God as father involves much more than a simple acknowledgement of his powers of creation or his control of the universe. There is much more involved here than the fact that God does indeed provide for all of creation. We are talking here not of providence, but we are talking here of sonship. My dear brothers and sisters, I urge you to gird up the loins of your mind, as Peter says, and follow this carefully with me. The question of sonship was already a stormy issue between Jesus and his own contemporaries. We can read about that in John 8. There we read that when Christ indicted the Jews for their bondage to sin, they first appealed to their relationship to Abraham. After all, they argued, we are members of God's covenant through Abraham. We have Abraham as our father, they said indignantly. And Jesus replies to them, if Abraham is your father, then you would do the deeds of Abraham, but you seek to kill me. Then they sought to appeal their relationship to the heavenly father. They said, we have one father, even God. 
Listen carefully now to Christ's condemnation as he strips them of their presumptuous and self-confident attitude and he identifies their true father. If God were, says Jesus, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from God. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are still of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, Satan. Mighty people, understand this well. Jesus makes a clear distinction here between those who belong to their father, God, through Jesus Christ, and those who belong to their father, Satan. And I remind you that still today there are only those two kinds of people in the world. And tragically, sometimes both kinds of people can be found even in the church. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are only children of God and children of the world, children of light and children of darkness. There exist only people who are regenerated, born again, and those who are not. There are only Christians and non-Christians. There is nothing else. There's no such thing as an almost Christian or a little bit Christian. Jesus himself once told a man that he was oh so near the kingdom, but he was still outside of the kingdom. All men and women in the world have either God as their father or they may still belong to their father, Satan. There is nothing else. But, but, but that kind of exclusiveness was a stumbling block to the Jews and has been an offense to the world ever since. It is still that exclusive view that is not tolerated in the world in which we live, is not tolerated in a world that places a premium on tolerance, compromise, and equality. It is still so today. The world insists that if God is the creator, if God is father, then he is father of all, the Jew, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, gay, straight, whatever. In fact, God then is determined to be the father even of the unbeliever. According to the world, no one may claim special status, for God is Father of all, and we are all brothers. Oh, do not be deceived. The Bible does not define sonship in biological terms. On the contrary, the scriptures want us to know that all of us come into this world as children of wrath, inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And to that extent, all men and women are indeed equal, equally condemned equally dead in sin and trespass. But scripture tells us more. We need to see clearly there is a spiritual distinction between the children of light and the children of darkness. And that's the confession here of Lord's Day 9. Here we've learned to say, I belong to God. I belong to God. Not because of my ancestry. Not because of my heritage not because of my correct church affiliation. No, 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 no. I have God as my father only because he, in his great love, has adopted me as his own child in Jesus Christ. Are you beginning to capture the concept here? You see, Nicodemus too was bewildered and astonished when Jesus confronted him with this statement, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh. 
and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John chapter 3. In John 1 we read, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Oh, we begin to hear it already. Sonship then is inseparably related to faith in God through Jesus Christ. And that is not accomplished by human effort, heredity, achievement, or decision-making. No, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I become children of God. So people God, do you hear what you are saying when you confess, I believe in God the Father? Have you begun to understand the implication of that confession? Here we confess that this almighty God, who by the power of his word, out of nothing, created the heavens and the earth, this same God, still by the power of his word, by his grace and through his spirit, has not only created you, but he has also recreated you. We confess that we too came into this world as enemies of God, but praise be to God, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians 1, he has rescued me, he has rescued me from the kingdom of darkness, and he has translated me into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light, in whom we now have redemption and forgiveness of sin. This almighty power of his word, the almighty power of his word by which he created, that same powerful word of God has recreated me personally and as a result God has received me as his child and he is now my father that's what you confess when you rise to your feet oh, I struggle for words to convey the content of that blessing to you it's hard for me not to burst into song singing blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine heir of salvation purchased of God born of his spirit washed in his blood no longer am I as I was no longer am I under the tyranny and the control of the devil. No longer am I under the bondage of sin. No longer am I in the kingdom of darkness. No longer do I belong to the world. Oh no, I now belong to Christ. God has rescued me. He has regenerated me. He has given me a new heart. He has placed a new spirit in me. He has given me his spirit. I have been born again by water and the spirit. I am now a child of God. That's the confession of the Christian in Lord's Day 1 and again here in Lord's Day 9. What is your only comfort in life and in death? I'm not my own, but I belong to God who is now my Father through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 8 when we hear him say, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. By birth, we became children of our parents. By rebirth, we became sons and daughters 
of the living God. Oh, we would disagree with our Pentecostal friends who would claim that a Christian must be able to define his conversion experience to the extent of time, place, and circumstances. No, it is not necessary to know when you have been born again. However, my dear precious people of God, hear me well. Each and every one of us must know that it has happened. My dear precious saints of God here in Bowmanville, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again. If you have not been recreated, you are not a Christian, and you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus made that clear to Nicodemus and to us all. The tragic presumption of the Jews arguing with Christ is still oftentimes seen today. The Jews considered themselves spiritually privileged because of their relationship to Abraham. We still see the same error today. Many people still assume that they are children of God by virtue of their birth in a Christian home or by virtue of going through the proper motions or because of correct church membership. Tragically, many people still make the same fatal error of presuming that it is well, that it is well with their souls without carefully examining the true condition of their hearts and lives. People of God, here in the catechism, the Christian confesses that he has been regenerated. He has been born again by the Spirit of God and therefore now is a new creation. Finally, then, the catechism wishes to instruct us as to the special benefit derived from the fact that God in Christ has adopted us to be his children. The answer is given us in the second half of the confession of this Lord's Day. It can be summed up in one word. One word, confidence. Rightly so. In whom could we trust more than our Father? Our Father in heaven. Our almighty Father who has out of nothing created heaven and the earth. The Christian joyfully proclaims, I trust him so much that I will not doubt that he will provide all things necessary for body and soul and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends to me in this sad world. Or veil of tears, depending on which translation you were reading. With David, we may exultingly shout, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, I will lack nothing because the Lord is my shepherd. I will lack nothing. He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul for he has accepted responsibility for both by, by adopting me. The Christian here testifies that he rests in the assurance that his heavenly father will never reject or forsake him for whom he, whom, for whom he has created and recreated. There is then for the true believer no real cause for doubt or fear ever. There is no need for anxiety since God Almighty has made himself our Father. But amid all of this jubilation, rightly so, but amid all of this jubilation, God does want us to remember that our faith in God may never try to go beyond the promises of God. We may indeed claim and expect God to honor his word. If he would fail to do so, he would cease to be God. 
However, though we may expect him to fulfill all of his promises to us, at the same time, we may not expect more than he has promised. That's not to say that God does not often, out of his abundant mercy, pour showers of blessing upon us, and as our own life experience testify to his overwhelming goodness, but we are to hold ourselves to his promises, no more, no less. My dear precious saints of God, it is so good for us to be reminded of that in order to spare us any unnecessary doubt or anxiety. For you see, when we begin to expect more than God has promised, and God decides in his wisdom to withhold that extra measure from us, then it is possible that we begin to doubt or to question God's providential care. You see, when we think that God has promised to give us a long and a happy life, and then our life is filled with sadness, sickness, or even death, then we can easily become confused. However, if we have learned to discern carefully here, we will understand that we may not doubt that God will provide all things necessary and God keeps his word. He always gives us what is needful for us. In other words, in other words he always gives us the necessary grace for us to live in accordance with his word. But that does not mean that God will always give us what we want or what we think we need. Our Father in heaven knows what is best for us and he has promised to give us all things necessary even when in his divine wisdom he withholds or removes things which in our minds are necessary. And when we become confused or worse disillusioned because of God's way with us in our lives, then the problem is with ourselves for not having properly distinguished our needs from our wants. But there, finally, there is still more good news here. The Catechism goes on to tell us that the Bible teaches that God will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends us in this sad world. And the reference to this sad world may come as a surprise to us. In such a joyful expression of faith, why is it necessary now to speak of a veil of tears or a sad world? And again, we need to seek our answer in the scriptures. In Ecclesiastes 9.2, we are told, all things, hear me well, all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked. What does that mean? Well, it means that as far as outward appearances are concerned, God's children would not appear to fare any better in this life than do the ungodly. They also have their difficulties in this earthly pilgrimage. Sickness, pain, death, mourning, disappointments become their lot in the same way as it comes to those who would scoff at the Christ. And our own life's experience will testify to that truth. We as God's children, we do not seem to have an easier time in this life than does the unbeliever. Is there really then no difference? To be sure, congregation, the catechism would have us know that there is a world of difference between God's care for the sons of the world and his care for the sons, of, sons and daughters of God. There is indeed one event to the righteous and to the wicked, but it is also true that all experiences of a difficult nature 
which God sends to his children in this sad world, he does with a purpose. Once again, this confession points us back to the summary of the Christian faith expressed in Lord's Day 1. Not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my heavenly Father. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. All things must work together for, my, for good, for my salvation. <coughs> all things. Even the trials, the hardships, even the tears are given us by God for our benefit. Is it then not a great blessing, congregation, that when we begin to become complacent or when we begin to trust in earthly treasures or is it then not a great gift from a loving God when he removes that idol from us in order to draw us back unto himself? What we have lost was excess baggage, rubbish. What we have gained in the process is the pearl of great price. My dear people of God, a child of God, give thanks to God in all circumstances, knowing that all will be well again, because great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. As Father, he wants to provide for his children. As Almighty Creator, he is able to provide for his children. Many earthly fathers want to provide, but are unable. Others are able but unwilling. And here the child of God confesses that God can and God does provide. Therefore, I trust him so much that I will not doubt. We may not translate that trust into pessimism. We may not blindly say that he will provide and then neglect our own responsibilities. No, we must work to provide the daily necessities of life. We must also always be on our guard to fight against evil and temptations with all the grace that God gives us. But we do not place our trust in our own strength or in our ingenuity, in our own hands or our own weapons. We work, we build, we pray. He blesses our efforts and obedience. He provides for all our needs and he averts all evil or turns it to our profit. Even the pain and the tears that he sends our way are gifts from our Heavenly Father, from him to sanctify us, to strengthen our faith, to draw us ever closer to him, and to fit us for union with the church above. May it be so for all of us. Shall we pray? Father, we began our service with the confession that our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, and we have listened to thee further explain to us the true meaning of that confession. May it please thee to work in our hearts in such a way that we may never doubt that thou art ever mindful of thy children. May we cast our anchor in the promise that thou art our Father because of Christ, and that because of him we have strength for today.